When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the things that brought out to me the difference between life and death was on our ranch in Rhodesia we had a big problem with leopards. And these leopards could kill a tremendous amount of calves in a very short space of time. And I went to an area where a few calves had been killed. I was walking along and just suddenly out of the corner of my eye I saw a movement. And I looked up and it was the most beautiful few seconds that I can ever remember experiencing. I just saw this leopard open his mouth. I saw the tongue, the pink part of his mouth, the whiskers, the little flick of the tail. I didn't have much time to think. I pulled the trigger and he dropped stone dead. And within the few seconds I went up to him and all he was was just a lump of a dead animal in a leopard skin. The difference between that live animal and the dead one is absolutely fantastic. Last year, right in front of my house, there's a river and the otter came up. I saw the salmon jumping and he moved back far too slow into the water just to fall back from a normal jump. So I ran down, jumped over a small wall right under a bridge and this um, face-to-face with an otter. And there he was, there's two paws on top of the fish. And uh, I said to myself, now maybe I, I'm too close to him, so if I move back, he might... I, I didn't know an awful lot about them anyway. So I said, if I move back, he, may, he might run away or he'll come forward. But he was staying there holding onto the fish in any case. So I just moved back slowly from him. And uh, he put his little... The fish slipped into a shallow pool. And he just turned his little eyes sideways, and I could see the white... Uh, I don't know what you call it, but it's a white part of his eye, part of the membrane, the skin, just at the back of his eye. And like a pup that you give a clatter to, you know. And the next thing, he grabbed the fish, pulled it out gently into the water, moved along about 10 or 15 yards and looked around at me. Yeah, well, the castle you look at is the castle of Dremore, and it was built by Tyg and Slaney O'Brien. And on the upper end of the castle, you can see a bit of a window or a ledge, and on this ledge, every year we got a raven nesting. And later on, as the raven built its nest and laid its eggs, there was always a fight over the nest, and uh, with a kestrel. And usually, what happened was the one of the kestrels arrived on the scene, and both the ravens attacked the kestrel. And while the fight was going on between the two ravens and the kestrel, the other kestrel went in and robbed the nest and took the young ones. And when this happened. The raven had no more interest in the nest, so the raven left, and the kestrel then went and laid her own brood and hatched out on the nest. The survival of the fittest or the most cunning, the death of the strong or the unlucky, excerpts from a wildlife weekend, a weekend of talks and walks, of live creatures and stuffed specimens, 
of beings fair and furry that go bump in the night and sleep in the day, of creatures that prowl and scurry to survive. Held in Ballyvaughan, the inspiration of a local group led by Brendan O'Donoghue, invitations to naturalists and to the public that they might learn from each other, but most of all, perhaps, that they might learn from the wildlife around us. Today, I suppose, uh, many people will say that the pine marten is the rarest mammal in Ireland, and I would say this is, it is possibly true, with the exception maybe of some individual species of bat. For instance, if we took, we have seven species of bat, and uh, if we took each of those individually, we probably w- may have rarer mammals. But definitely it's an animal that's in danger. As recently as 50 to 60 years ago, there were pine marten in lots of the country where they are today. They were in the mountainous areas of West Cork and Kerry. They were in the Cumbra's Knockmill Downs and that area of, of Tipperary and Waterford. And also they would be more widespread probably into Donegal and areas like that, so that the pine marten would have been widespread over Ireland. At the moment, we carry out a survey in from 1978 to 80, and in that survey I found that the pine marten is now confined to two main areas, and the big one would be west of the River Shannon, from Sligo to Limerick, and one other large area, which would be the Sleeve Bloom mountain range in the centre of the country. And looking at both those areas for physical reasons, the River Shannon limiting them in the western area, and the Sleeve Blue Mountains, because they are quite an isolated range of mountains in the centre of a large agricultural area, the martyrs are unlikely of their own to spread out of these areas and recolonise the areas that they have become extinct in. So, also, in when you think of the animals from the study we've done here in Dromore, in an area that is actually very, very suitable for pine martin, that you find an area of 500 acres with just five or six animals, you will realise that there aren't a lot of pine marten scattered through the west of Ireland. And uh, uh, programmes aimed at eliminating vermin, which some people call the pine marten and foxes and other animals, could have a great, put the animal in great danger. And poisoning programmes in particular are of danger because the animal takes, readily takes carrion and so it can easily be poisoned. Whereas very often you find people poisoning to get rid of dogs or foxes and things. And it's something else, maybe carrion crows or, in our case, the pine marten, which are actually being hit hardest by these type programmes. So great care should be taken with the areas. And also, from a habitat point of view, it, is, it would be of concern to me anyway, the amount of reclamation of scrubland areas, especially in County Clare and the limestone area, that has been taking place over recent years and some of which would be doubtful whether it would be economical from an agricultural point of view or not and thus we're risking habitat for an animal which is in great danger by doing something which is probably a very little benefit very little long-term benefit Paddy O'Sullivan of the Forest and Wildlife Service Research Officer for Clare Galway For eight years now he has been conducting research on the pine marten in its habitat observed near Ennis. Well, this is the centre here in Dromore Wood where we carried out most of our work. We have a, a forestry hut here which we used as a laboratory when we were catching animals and trapping them. We brought them back here for weighing and measuring and tagging and all the rest, which we did with them. And uh, we used this as our base for some radio telemetry work and other, other 
studies which we did here on the Pine Martin and also here beside it we've got cages in which we have animals in captivity. Some of these animals have been here for as long as seven years and uh, have behaved very well in captivity and are, seem to be very contented and even though they didn't breed they're in perfect health and weight-wise and everything they compare very favorably to animals in the wild. We'll have a look and see the animals in a minute. Um, the, ha the, the wood here is a, an old it was originally an old woodland with old oak on it. The oak has been cut away and it has been replanted with Scots pine, larch and beech. And you have a heavy undergrowth of briar and that sort of white thorn scrub and black thorn. And this is very suitable to the pine rotten because they, you have the hazel also which produces nuts. So you have a good combination. You have a top story which provides some food and a lower story which provides plenty cover for the animals which is one of the things they like. The key, you see. Oh yeah, we can go into this one anyway. We have a key to go in here and we can have a look at this first animal here. She's been here now for seven years. Oh, we got the lock. All these things have to be carefully locked because otherwise you get people coming in interfering with the animals and that wouldn't do. Now, the cages here are a bit small. Um, actually the animals need more freedom and also they need more natural cover in the cages as you can see there's a certain amount here there's some elder and old logs and stones and you get nettles growing in the summertime but the animal actually needs more space more space to run around and also if the cage was bigger you get more natural food occurring in it you get more beetles and if it was big enough you get mice and stuff as well in the cages well you won't get that here because as you can see the ground cover has worn off and on a lot of it you have clear ground with just moss growing on it and the odd weeds coming up occasionally but they get flattened out because the area is too small and the animal is, uh, has too much concentrated movement on the area thus keeping down the cover. Now if we go in and we'll go to the box and have a look so we close the door after us and yeah make sure the animal doesn't get out which happened us once although she didn't get away but she got out and was just caught around the corner and she went off up over the roof. If she got away, would she breed? Uh, would she well, stay stay in the wild? Be... Here you see, because you have animals in the wild going around, as a matter of fact, it's one of the things against breeding here as well, that you have wild animals coming to the cage, and a male which would regard some of these females as in his territory would be going around at the, on the outside of the cage. And even during period when the animals have mated, this activity by males from the outside wouldn't be helpful at all. It would probably be working against us having uh, against the animals successfully breeding and this is one of the reasons that we're moving the cages from Drumore, we're moving them to another area where there aren't pine marten at the moment and there we should have a better chance of with larger cages more room and that sort of thing and also the animals away from other pine marten which would be upsetting them. Well the pine marten usually mate in June and it's the only time of the year that the animal is vocal. You can hear the pine marten at that time of year. So if you walk through the woods and remain quiet, you'll hear the little whelp. It's a little something in between that of a cat and a dog. It's a high-pitched type of sound raising into a sort of bark. And you find that the two animals are together, and there's always just the two, the male and the female. It's not a group, as you find with some other animals. And um, they're in the, in the cover, in the undercover, under the briars and that, because the animals are inclined, even though you sometimes see them crossing roads and opened areas, the pine marten generally keep in cover, and they stay in areas of cover. 
And um, when you hear the sound, if you stay quiet and listen for a while, you will eventually probably be lucky enough to see the animal. And what's actually you'll see happening is the male takes the female by the scruff of the neck and pulls her around. And a lot of this activity goes on prior to mating and during mating. And the animals often stay in the same area for four or five days on end. And each day you can come back and hear them there mating and you can hear the noise and so locate the animals. And what about uh, the gestation period? They mate in June and the primaten have this delayed implantation uh, which means that the animal actually, the female, then stores the sperm and implantation doesn't take place until the following spring with the young being born usually during March or early April. Why is that? Well, I suppose it's a safeguard for maybe many reasons. There are other mustelids as well have the same type of um, of uh, gestation and uh, breeding habits. But in the spring, the animal can then, I suppose, in cold weather, control the time when the young are born in that she can start implantation late if the year is cold or early if the year is mild. So she... Uh harbours and harvests the male sperm and then releases it into her own ovaries at, at the proportion of time to allow her young to be born in the best climatic conditions. That could be, yes, that could be it. Yes. Nature's way of working again, of protecting yes, itself. Of protecting itself against the weather and protecting the young when they're born with the best chance of survival. And what happens to the male pine marten? The male pine marten doesn't have anything to do with the rearing of the young as such. That uh, the female, as a matter of fact, will want the male away from or at that time and actually it's been we found that the female can abort if they win in captivity if the male is kept in the area that the female is so we we have animals in captivity and after mating we keep the male separate from the female so that the female that we have a better chance of the animals producing young and does the female spontaneously abort because she fears that if uh, her young are born that the young males will be slaughtered by the older male from whom she has mated? It could be. You find this in other animals as well where you find the rabbit will close the burrow to protect the young ones from the male and it is possible that it's the same type of thing. What about the role of the male once he has mated? Uh, is he thrown out? Uh, no, he keeps his own territory and one male may overlap a few females territories but the animals do not as such, they're solitary type animals. They do not hunt in packs, so they not, do not go on. You don't find them in groups. You find one animal, and it controls territory of its own. And here in Dremore, we found that uh, females' territories were as small as 30 to 40 acres, whereas male territories could be up to 100 and more acres. This would be, uh, if you look at figures for Scotland and other areas, this would be very small territory, because in some places you're talking about square miles for one animal, whereas here you're talking about an area in Dremore of about 500 acres, where you'd have a maximum population of six or seven pine marten. So their territories are very small. But then Tremor is very suitable because of food, from a food point of view, it's a very suitable area. Um, and a survey we did in Tremor would be found as many as 25 berry and droop bearing plants and trees. And this fruit provides food for the pine marten. So there's an abundant supply of food here. And uh, when you try to um, breed in captivity to mate, male and female in captivity in cages what happened well what we did find was that last it's only last season last season we discovered that when the female the male was introduced to the female's cage uh, they didn't mate and when the thing was done the other way around uh, they did so that when the fe when the male was introduced into the female's cage the female was then dominant 
and so the male didn't mate with her. And on the change round, the opposite was so, and the male then mated. Are you saying then it's a condition of mating that the male must feel dominant? It is, it must be. It looks from this that that is the case, the male. And also from the fact that he hauls the female around by the scruff of the neck and this sort of thing um, has sort of dominion over it. It would appear that that is one of the reasons and that the male must be dominant before you get mating taking place. And the other analogy uh, with human activity where the prowling male has a much larger territory to operate and he comes back to the various females and impregnates them and they keep uh, the home going for him and the female's territory is much smaller. You could almost relate that to modern humanity with the wife at home with the children and the housing estate and the male going out to work and leisure and play and having a greater physical territory to cover and the female having a smaller territory to operate in. You could, I suppose, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, some of the males we have found here were covering as many as three female territories and possibly would be mating with those three females. And then, of course, as you say, having the freedom, they didn't have to rear the young ones. The female reared the young ones on her own and was totally responsible for that. As a matter of fact, the male wouldn't have been in the, in the household at all or involved in this work at all. This animal, now would be over eight years old because when we caught her she was an adult in the wild she was an adult female as you can see when you look at her uh, she's a nice chocolate brown color and if as you look at her you see her head is thin to the front and you've got creamy rounded ears and this is one feature of the animal you can see it has a long bushy tail and as you can see her legs are short she's low a lot to the ground. You won't mix her up with any other animal. The one animal that would look a bit like it but much larger would be the otter. The otter is the same shape and also the mink and stoat. They would all be the same family. They're all mustelids and they would look similar. Both the size, there's a great size variation. I mean the stoat is, is, would be very very much smaller and the otter very much bigger. The mink of course would, could be confused with the pine marten because the mink would be quite close to it in size. But then we in clear so far, we don't have a lot of wild mink, but in other areas of the country, such as the valleys of the Shore, the Northern, the Barrow, areas like that, you've got wild mink. Plentiful. She's got uh, uh, a rodent's narrow front and largish eyes, That's and she's right. terrified. She started she is, to, yeah, to she's wee. frightened of us. Yeah, you can see the saliva running it from her mouth there with fear, and she is frightened. You can actually, at times, if, if I have my hand down, I can, I can feel her heartbeat. You know. And as you can see, she's also urinating there. She's very frightened. And for this reason, we don't, we don't interfere with the animals a lot when they're in captivity, which is the best way of treating them. The animal, as you can see, I can rub her quite easily. She's not going to bite me or anything, and I'm not afraid of her. Uh, she's been that way all the time. From, from a few weeks in captivity, they settle down, and you can handle them quite easily. The only danger in handling them is if you lift the animal, you find that... The claws are the biggest danger. The animal is frightened and nervous if you lift it up and will automatically bring up its claws to protect itself and to, from being left down, I suppose, or falling or squeezed or anything else. So the biggest danger is that you get your wrists torn. And where did this legend come of having a nail in its tail? Where did that come from? That's a very old legend, you know. And I think it goes back even in, in uh, biblical times, you hear reference to the cat with the nail in its tail, you know, and uh, in some legend or another, the cat used to actually catch its prey by throwing its tail with the nail and, and then hooking the nail on something and pulling it back. And even in Ireland, this thing, this legend was there. And I met people who, who said, you know, when I asked them about a pine martin, they had actually heard of them, or a martin cat, which a lot of people call them. And um, they said, oh, yeah. I saw Pine Martin and he had a nail in his tail. He had about two inches long, a big crooked nail. And actually, even people who saw these animals in captivity went off 
and said to somebody else, oh, you should see the animals he has. They're fine rot. And they have big nails in their tails. Whereas, in fact... They have no nail in their tail. No, the, the fine rotten doesn't have a nail in its tail. No way. It doesn't. You can see its tail. It has a lovely, long, bushy tail. But there's absolutely... There's no nail. And the end of the tail isn't bare either, which could be confused with a nail or anything like that. You know? It's not actually... This lady, no, won't... You won't hear any sound from this one. She's not inclined to be vocal at all. She'll be... Right. The most popular animal that I get in is undoubtedly the cock pheasant. They're certainly one of the most beautiful birds we get here in Ireland, although they're not native to Ireland at all. They originate from all parts of Asia, um, therefore you get such a diversity of colours. Um, they account for about half of the work we do. Ronnie Markell, Rhodesian-born, game hunter and farmer in Africa. Now in the pastoral setting of Broadford County Clare, he keeps, mounts and paints bird life. When I get a, a pheasant in, obviously I want a clean, fresh specimen. Um, I wouldn't work on anything that's uh, reached any sort of deterioration. And basically the very first thing I do is take the skin off. I'm a, as a taxidermist, I'm only interested in the skin and not interested in any thing inside the bird at all. So very carefully we skin the animal. Um, the feathers stay on the skin and once the skin is taken off, the, the body is disposed of altogether. We make up um, a body similar to that that came out of the bird using wood wool and we tie the wood wool very tight with string to make the same size and shape as the original. Using a system of wires um, that go through the legs and up the neck, uh, we thicken these with carpet underlay to get the right shape and um, uh, substance of the bird. And we put potter's clay inside the cleaned out skull. So what you have is the form made with the skin, and the skin is treated with borax powder which is a drying agent, it's a sterilizing agent, and it's a moth-proof agent. The skin is put over this form and sewed up, and then the um, uh, feathers are tied in place, wrapped with thread for about 10 days, so that the feathers will dry in place. The eyes, of course, um, are glass eyes. We buy glass eyes. And I get my supplies from America because there's nobody here in Ireland that supplies that sort of thing. Um, the birds are put on a stand and correctly shaped. Um, and then it's just a matter of letting them dry until they're ready to go out to the customer. Your own background in wildlife is that you uh, were brought up in Africa. Yes, I was very lucky in that... Um, I was born and reared in a very unspoiled part of Africa, in um, what was at the time Rhodesia, and we had a, a big cattle ranch, and on our ranch we had a tremendous amount of um, game. Um, this game became as important to us as the cattle, in that we later developed hunting safaris on the ranch, and we'd get in Americans and Germans and Frenchmen to come out and cull the surplus big bulls. Um, from preparing these heads and trophies for them to take back home, I developed an interest in taxidermy. 
and also the fact that I paint birds, I needed specimens in front of me to do my paintings correctly. And because of my basic interest in wildlife as well, my um, interest and enthusiasm in taxidermy grew and grew from there. Say here now you have the sable antelope from Africa and beside it a burn mountain goat and the two of them seem remarkably similar. Uh, do we have to go back thousands of years? Uh, does it show a connection between early migration from Africa to this country that there's almost a distinct resemblance? In fact, not almost, there is a distinct resemblance. They're stronger than cousins, the sable antelope from Africa and the burn mountain goat. Yes, the sable antelope is very similar to the, uh, to the burren mountain goat. It is, of course, much bigger and has developed in a different way, but I would certainly presume that um, they are distant cousins and there must be some connection between the two. To have animals looking so similar in different geographical reason, regions, there must be a reason for it. What do you think is the reason? That they evolved into different continents like man did. From a central point they went their own ways and then um, evolved into their own um, environments and developed their own um, little ways. Like the goats developed long hair to cope with the, the harsh winters we have here in Europe, whereas the sable antelope has a very fine thin hair to, um, so that it's not too hot for the African sun. Uh, most of the birds of prey are migratory, the kestrels, sparrowhawks. Um, most, a lot of the smaller birds migrate from Africa. The cuckoos migrate from Africa. Um, there are a tremendous amount of birds that migrate from Africa. Most of the insect-eating birds come from Africa in that during the winter here there are no insects around. So they have to go to Africa to find the insects. What distance is that that they survive? 8,000 miles wouldn't be too far for a bird to migrate. Where do you get most of your trade from? I get work from all over the country. At the moment I'm busy doing a tiger from a safari park in the north of Ireland, but I get work from Cork, Kerry, Waterford, County Clare, um, everywhere. And that uh, fish I saw there? The swordfish uh, was caught off Ekil Island. It uh, weighed 620 pounds, is 12 and a half feet long, and went into a salmon fisher's nets. And um, it was it was being mounted for the National Museum in Dublin. One of the things that brought out to me the difference between life and death was on our ranch in Rhodesia we had a big problem with leopards, and these leopards could kill a tremendous amount of calves in a very short space of time. And I went to an area where a few calves had been killed. I was walking along and just suddenly out of the corner of my eye I saw a movement. And I looked up and it was the most beautiful few seconds that I can ever remember experiencing. I just saw this leopard open his mouth. I saw the tongue, the pink part of his mouth, the whiskers, the little flick of the tail. I didn't have much time to think. I pulled the trigger and he dropped stone dead. And within the few seconds, I went up to him and all he was was just a lump of a dead animal in a leopard skin. The difference between that live animal and the dead one is absolutely fantastic. 
and you can never recreate that in your taxidermy. No way could you recreate um, something alive in taxidermy. You can only use the skin to make some form fairly similar in shape to the original, but it won't be a live animal. Jared King, wildlife painter, would you agree with that? I, I would, yes, I agree with that, because if my entire life was whole revolved around keeping birds, and when I was very young I kept all, uh, anything I could find. If it was brought in and damaged or injured, I took care of it. And Later on then I became interested in falconry, and uh, perhaps as a result I've not been given a licence over the past 10 years because the peregrine was on the endangered list that I became really interested in painting uh, falcons. If I couldn't have them, I, I painted them, and it started off from there. And your particular paintings of the otter now are very evocative. Why, why that particular animal? Well, that was a special experience because last year, right in front of my house, there's a river and the otter came up. I saw the salmon jumping and he moved back far too slow into the water just to fall back from a normal jump. So I ran down, jumped over a small wall right under a bridge and this um, face to face with an otter. And there he was, his two paws on top of the fish. And... Uh, I said to myself, now maybe I, I'm too close to him, so if I move back, he might... I, I didn't know an awful lot about them anyway. So I said, if I move back, he may... He might run away or he'll come forward, but he was staying there holding onto the fish in any case. So I just moved back slowly from him, and uh, he put his little... The fish slipped into a shallow pool, and he just turned his little eyes sideways, and I could see the white... Uh, I don't know what you call it, but it's a white part of his eye, part of the membrane, the skin, just at the back of his eye. And... Like a pup that you give a clatter to, you know? And the next thing, he grabbed the fish, pulled it out gently into the water, moved along about 10 or 15 yards and looked around at me and then made his way off with the with the um, uh, salmon. So I quickly put it on the back of a matchbox. I said, sometime I'll paint that particular scene now. So I got around to doing it, and that's the painting that's there. What about the interest in wildlife in this country now? Why is it that people, do you think, in a semi-urban country like Ireland today, why are they suddenly getting interested in wildlife? I think for a long time, uh, people have abused wildlife. And the, there are lots of areas where wildlife is almost non-existent. I was speaking to somebody um, fairly recently who was saying that Ireland had a very rich wildlife compared to parts of England in uh, diversity of types. Whereas in England you might see the same birds over and over again. You wouldn't see stoats and pine martens and badgers and foxes all that easily. And in Ireland, fortunately, people have suddenly realised that if we let this apathy continue, we're going to end up with a country that's barren of wildlife. So while we can, we have to protect what we've got. Such protection falls mainly to the Forest and Wildlife Service and to the Office of Public Works. And both these bodies have in recent years turned thousands of previously derelict acres into parklands of public pleasure. Dr Noel Kirby is Assistant Superintendent at Connemara National Park. And high up among the windy wastes of the burn, he took me on a trek, and for him a busman's holiday, through the hazel scrub. The Office of Public Works are acquiring land down around the Mullock Moor area in the southeastern part of the burn 
and the idea is to set up a national park <coughs> which will be conserving as many plant and animal communities in the area as possible and helping to educate and helping to teach the public about conservation and in general to set up part of the Boran as a conserved area for future generations and for public access. What should people who come out in an afternoon into this ticket now, what, what, what are the things that they should look for to understand what goes on? Well, the main thing is if you're out in the open and the grassland or on the grikes and you suddenly come into a scrub area, you'll find a change in the flowers that you see. And these flowers here grow just mainly under the shade, whereas some of the, the animal life, which is normally very hard to see within a, a scrub or woodland because... The, most of the animals are nocturnal coming out at night or they shy away from people but you can find evidence of them being here and if we just look under this stone here and under the moss we can see which, what probably appear to be hazelnuts unopened some of them and some of them have little holes gnawed through them and we also have some haws from the hawthorn tree and we find that this, these have been eaten by a mouse the field mouse which is very common in Ireland one of our most common animals and what the mouse does when he he'll make a nest and gather the hazelnuts and over the winter he will gnaw through the very tough hazel shell and once he is into the center then he can eat out the kernel on the inside and also the same with the halls he will eat the fleshy covering around the the nut on the inside of the halls then I notice here now uh, a collection two or three dozen of uh, hazelnuts most of them cracked open, uh, spliced open, in fact. Two things. One, how can a mouse splice open a nut so expertly? And secondly, why has he not opened some of the others? Well, if we take the ones that haven't been opened first and just, you can see the shell has gone soft and we can crack it open here as well and we'll find that it's empty in the middle. Seemingly the mouse can detect whether there is a, a kernel inside the nut or not. And I did one experiment in my research on the burren to see if the mouse can tell apart nuts that are full and empty. And it's quite easily done just by putting out nuts you know that are empty inside by collecting them early in the season and putting out full nuts, as we're called, as we call them. And um, the mouse, the mice in the hazel scrub, in fact, took all the full nuts and left all the empty nuts behind without opening the, em em or the empty nuts, as we call them. Did he do this by weighing them in his front paws or by it's smell? It's hard to know, but it's probably by smell because there is a very distinctive smell from the hazelnut. And he can smell it through its shell? I'd imagine he can smell it through. And this is how he finds these, because when the nuts fall on the ground, as you can see, they're under leaves inside and moss and very difficult. And at this time of the year, you <coughs> rarely find, if ever, any nuts that are full this time of the year. All the nuts, in fact, have been eaten. Now you spoke of the split nuts there which seem to be done very evenly. This is probably carried out by a squirrel. Now there are not too many squirrels in the barn but the evidence is there based on the manner in which these hazelnuts have been opened. At the, at the tip of the nut the squirrel can gnaw open a little hole and then by using his jaws and his front paws he can break open the nut into two equal halves and take the kernel out. So it's mainly by evidence that you detect animal life within scrubland and woodlands.
Well, in fact, it means, of course, that the, this particular rock, which is normally a haul-out for seals, it's mostly covered with the sea, as you can see now, and all the seals are out fishing. Uh, these, um, they look rather like young common seals to me, and are playing around, enjoying themselves, having probably had their lunch break already, and they're probably waiting for the tide to drop so that they'll hi they will then haul out on, on these rocks with the rest of their uh, relations, basically. Now if you in fact came down earlier in the morning when the tide was down, you, what you would see is, uh, with, with the naked eye in fact, is a sort of lot of brownish greyish blobs sitting out there. But if you put binoculars on them, you'd see that there was really quite a nice healthy population of common seals. Now this is one of the two sorts of seals we have in Ireland. The other one is the grey seal, which is a much bigger animal. The common seal sort of runs to about five or six feet at the most and also breeds at a different time. The grey seal breeds in the autumn, in other words their pups are born in September, October, whereas with the common seal they breed in June and July, so the young are born then. And of course, as you can appreciate, looking out here, once the tide comes up, now if you were born this morning, the tide is up around your ears <laughs> come the afternoon, so they have to be able to swim very quickly. Within two or three days they're swimming completely. So they're absolutely mobile, just about from within a half an hour to an hour of the time they are born, and then uh, very soon, within the day, they're swimming with their mothers and so on. So they have to be uh, capable of surviving. Yeah, you know, okay, it's calm today, but normally this western coastline, as you know, the Atlantic is fairly fierce, and they do uh, need to be able to swim and they c uh, and survive. Of course, a lot of them don't survive. In fact, we find that about seventy percent of all pups born in the first year die. So there's an enormous mortality. The, the reason being that survival in the Atlantic is really very difficult for a young animal. Here, here, here's a female badger now for whom uh, the concern is all over. She got clouted by a passing car. Why, 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 why in this particular place? Well, I think because uh, it just happened to be crossing the road, probably in the early morning, as it wasn't here when I came along the previous evening and uh, badgers like a lot of animals have very traditional pathways and said in other words she'd be no she'd be nosing down through the little little wood behind us here coming across the, the wall maybe running down into the field below the road and it was raining and somebody came around fast this corner and hit her that's what it amounts to how quickly did she die well, it's difficult to know, but uh, it's got a fracture of the skull, so probably unconscious fairly quickly and, you know, more or less instantaneous, I would think. What will this uh, one's young do now that she hasn't come back to Well, at this stage, we're in the middle of March. Uh, I would say that chances of survival are poor, probably. Fergus O'Gorman, ecologist, seal watcher, badger watcher. And finally, a walk by the Caha River, which runs down into Fenor, led by Rita McCarthy, through whose land the river runs, out into the Atlantic, out of whose tumult came the first man and the first animal life. Where we, we know where Finn McCool, where Bran found, his greyhound Bran found the well so that his master could drink from it. Now we followed the river four miles down and we passed some lovely Tubbers, which is a well in Irish, and followed them down here to Tubbers Stocky, which is Stack's well. Now the well is a fresh spring water well, so if anyone likes to taste the water, this there. Now, down here to my right, there's a little uh, waterfall. 
But if the water, if the river was dry, we, we would be able to see the, the footprints of horses and a mare and her foal, which legend has it, Mononon Mocklur's horses swam over from Iron Islands, which you can see in the distance, and they swam over, and when they reached Fenor Beach, which is the sea water, they needed some fresh water, and at the time the river was running dry. So they came up along the river, and the first spring well they found was this, Tuberstocky. And you can see the marks of the mare and her foals, the hooves, at the bottom of the waterfall down there. This area is called Glown Coron. Glown is a valley in Irish, and Coron the rocks. There's a cave up to your left there, and that's called Glown Coron Cave. Over here you can see a reservoir tank where water is piped from Lisnaheen down along from the river. As you can see, it's a powerful source, and it's, the water is, is supplying the whole area over here, Fanor, Marouk, all over around. We just, if you want to continue on down now, at the very end, it's beyond the hound. Beyond the hound is where the water, where the river from the Kaha River reaches the Atlantic Ocean down to the very end. Beyond the hound is the name of it. The mouth of the river, Bale the hound. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.